Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Dick and Mary Ferraro. It's June 19th, 2023. We're in the Nicholson Library at Linfield University in McMinnville. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank, Thank you, you for us. having us. First question is why wine? When I was a teenager, I asked my aunt that. Um, my, my dad and his family immigrated from Italy in the early 19th century. And uh, my aunt was a little older, much older than dad. Dad was a small boy when he came here. But whenever I was over to my aunts and uncles, uh, if I had lunch or something, there was wine on the table. And one day I said, and, and the same with my maternal grandparents, my mother's parents. And uh, so they, they all made their own wines. And uh, I said, Auntie, I said, how come you drink wine? And she said, well, in Italy, she said where we came from, uh, the water wasn't safe to drink. And she said, wine was just, you had to buy water. And it was just about as cheap to buy wine as water. And wine was nutritious. And it was looked at as a, uh, a supplement to food. And said some people considered it as food. And I think the only thing I came away with was the water wasn't any good to drink. And I thought, wow, I'm glad you came here. And I was born and raised in Walla Walla, Washington, and, uh, which is now uh, some real wine country. But um, it was hard to visualize that the water wasn't good to drink. Not, not because, and Walla Walla means many waters. And there were all kinds of good wells. And, and of course, we had water that came out of the Blue Mountains uh, that supplied Walla Walla with domestic water. And um, so that kind of left an impression with me. Um, my, uh, my first experience with wine was when my dad, I think I was about six years old, and dad said, we got to go help grandpa make wine. OK. So we went to the train station and uh, unloaded box, I didn't do it, I was too young, unloaded boxcars full of grapes. And uh, they came from California. And this was, had to be late 1940s, 48, 49. And uh, we went, took, put the grapes on Grandpa's truck, took them down to his farm, and uh, processed them. And I remember uh, somebody handed me uh, some juice that was coming out of the crusher. And it was Moscato. Beautiful juice. I had never tasted grape juice like that. And the next one that we did was Zinfandel. So they did Moscato for white, Zinfandel for red. And uh, the juice was wonderful. And I said, uh, wow, this is great. About two weeks later, Dad said, we got to go help Grandpa drain the wine. I said, OK. So I was anticipating that same wonderful juice. And I stuck a glass underneath the press. And I said, oh, Grandpa, I said, this stuff went bad. 
everybody smiled. And that was kind of the last time I think I ever drank any wine because it was always available. I really didn't, didn't uh, like it. Growing up in Walla Walla was interesting. There was a large Italian settlement there. Um, most of them grew Walla Walla sweet onions and uh, were gardeners. Everybody had 15, 20 acres. And uh, there was a uh, gardener's association where they took their onions and vegetables. It was a packing house and, and marketing thing. And uh, when my grandfather, Dominic Leocano, was the president of that thing in the 40s, he, um, he organized a consolidated purchase of grapes uh, out of California. And uh, they, um, he went to California, took a train, and went there to negotiate price and quality. And I never knew exactly what he meant by quality, but I, I found something on the internet that was kind of interesting. It was a, uh, I don't know if you can see that, but that was on the side of the boxes that, that came in. And uh, it was from, he dealt with somebody called the Riola Brothers, who I don't think are still in, in business. But one of, the, one of the things it says on there is that the grapes weren't irrigated. And that was something I later found out in winemaking that was controversial with, wine, with vineyard owners. And that says not irrigated. Mm -hmm. But all the boxes came in about 25 pound boxes. They were crates, wooden crates. And uh, when I was about 10 or 12, I was old enough to uh, unload them. And uh, anyway, uh, a lot of the Italian immigrants there made their own wines. And uh, that was kind of interesting. I really had no interest in the wines at that time. It was always offered, but uh, I, I always declined. Um, I don't think it was until my, I'm sorry, Mary, do you, you have anything no, to say? No, I'm listening to you. I'm I was doing all the talking that's here. That's fine. Bring her in, don't worry. Okay. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I got into wines until I was in, almost in my 30s. And. Uh, your grandfather? Well, the, pardon? Didn't grandfather Dominic brought you down? Oh, Downstairs yeah. and said thing. somebody needed to carry on the wine tradition, and he thought this one was the right one to do it. Yeah, there was, I think one day after I, um, after graduating from college, I went to University of Portland, graduated from there, uh, went, went down to my grandmother's place one, one Sunday to have dinner. And after dinner, uh, dad and I and grandpa were sitting there, and grandpa said, I want to tell you something I don't want you to forget. Okay. He said, do you remember when we made sausage, butchered the hogs and made sausage? I said, oh yeah, I remember that. I said, that was, uh, you made us do everything, uh, us oldest grandkids, all the steps. And I went through the steps. And uh, he was pretty pleased. And he said, do you remember when we made wine? I said, oh, Grandpa, I don't like that stuff. <laughs> and he said, well, you might someday. So he said, let's go through it. So he did. And he asked me then, after he was done, he said, ask, what, 
repeat what I just said. Well, I couldn't do it. He said, let's go through it again this time, pay better attention. <laughs> so, so I did, at least by the time I left there, I could repeat what he had told me. And um, I really had never had any intention of making wine. And like I said, it must have been about five years later, I kind of, I was working in Seattle. Um, and uh, it was a little more sophisticated in Seattle. And I was living with a, uh, a friend of mine that I'd went to high school and college with. And he was having a glass of wine for every meal. And so we uh, kind of acquired an interest and a taste in it. And got married, met my wife there, got married, and uh, we moved to Missoula, Montana. I worked for the US Forest Service. That's what paid the bills for 37 years. And um, in Missoula, we found a lot of people that made their own wine from things like choke cherries. Um, Dandelion. Dandelions, yeah, any, anything they could, could do. And I thought, okay, uh, I tasted somebody had some cherry wine. It was pretty good. And so I thought, maybe we'll use cherries. And uh, a friend of mine had a, a cherry orchard on the south end of Flathead Lake. And so we went to Flathead and uh, Lake and picked cherries. Mary and I brought them to our apartment. And um, we said, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> so we, we sat there, and I don't know how many pounds of cherries we had, but we had three carboys, five-gallon carboys. We squished them with our hands, put them in a, uh, a container, and let them ferment. We thought they were fermenting. Uh, I, I used the formula that my grandfather used, which really wasn't right for uh, cherries. And I was teaching school at the time, and so the following Monday, I had to get up in front of my second graders, and my hands were just red. I mean, you want to talk about, <laughs> I was, you know, I spent the whole day trying to write with chalk on the chalkboard like this, because we had crushed the cherries with our hands, was, and it made some pretty awful wine. In fact, it was so bad that we agreed that the best thing to do was use it as drain cleaner and we just poured it down the kitchen sink. It was awful. Yeah, after that, uh, there was a brew shop in Missoula and uh, catered mostly to beer, but it had some wine supplies. So I went down to the brew shop, cruised through it, asked the, asked the, way, the, uh, the person there, the sales clerk, you know, about wine. And they gave me this book. And uh, it was The Art of Making Wine. I still have some notes in it. And when, when I, uh, this was 1972. When I went through the book, I found the errors of my way. <laughs> and with, with cherries and fruit and things like that, you really needed to add water, sugar, acid, that kind of stuff. Um, but I found some recipes for Zinfandel and Moscato, and I recognized that. And I thought, okay, you know, this looks pretty simple. This looks like what Grandpa told me, Grandpa and Dad told me. Well, the next fall, I went to Pacific Fruit and Produce. I thought there, there was a produce house in, in Missoula. And, and there was the same 
produce house in Walla Walla. That's where we picked up the grapes out of the train and um, asked them if they could uh, order some winemaking grapes. And at that point, they said, oh, yeah, we order a lot of winemaking grapes for people. And so uh, I found that some of my colleagues that I worked with uh, got grapes out of California. Well, anyway, we uh, uh, got some Zinfandel. I followed the formulas. And it didn't turn out too bad. I mean, it was drinkable. Well, it wasn't great, but it was drinkable. And to be honest with you, you know, you look forward and say, well, you know, I'm going to do this next year again. But maybe I'll do something a little different. And uh, that went on for 30 years <laughs> while, while we were in the Forest Service, moving around from Missoula to Portland, Washington, D.C., and, uh, and back to Portland. We always uh, bought our houses based on whether or not it had a basement, because you needed a basement, you know, to bring the grapes in. And our first house in Missoula was really only partially finished when we moved in. There were still a lot of things to do. And um, Dick left the grapes in the garage because he wanted them to stay cool. And he, he brought them down into the basement. And I have a, I should have brought it, that picture of you. He's in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt standing in my canning kettle with the grapes in the kettle and he's squashing them with his feet. And, and screaming bloody murder because the grapes were almost frozen. That's how cold it was. And I kept, I had to run up to the next level and get a bucket of hot water and bring the water down so he could put his poor feet. I offered her to do it and she said, no, you go ahead. No, thank you. I, I'm watching. I'm taking notes and pictures too. But I think the reason why we, he really got into it is because one of my second grade students, um, her, her family was Italian, and every year they had a huge party, and he had a, a crusher. Was it a destemmer too, or was it just the crusher? Anyway, it was an old, old wooden one, and they would invite Hundred of, hundreds of people into their house on a kind of a, you know, people come in and out, bring food, they'd go downstairs and they'd run the crank on the machine. And, um, and they invited us because I had, you know, talked to my little students' parents and said, oh yeah, you know, Dick is just learning to make wine. And they thought that, you know, that would be great. So we went and it was, it was almost overwhelming. There were so many people in there and they all wanted to crank the machine and everything, and, you know, but it was a lot of fun. And, and, and so the following year, uh, we decided we'd do the same thing in our basement. So we invited all the people from the Forest Service that we knew and, um, you know, made a bunch of, Treats and stuff, and had people bring hors d'oeuvres and everything, and put some Italian music on. And they were down in these big buckets, you know, hopping up and down and crushing the grapes. <laughs> and they actually thought they were having fun. They didn't realize they were doing the work for us. 
Yeah, they, I, I remember one lady was, we were sitting there looking at the boxes of grapes and, and eating some uh, hors d'oeuvres, and she said, you're really not going to step on those grapes, are you? I said, no, I'm really not. She says, you are. <laughs> and so she was kind of shocked, and I think she was the first one in the bucket, finally. Because yeah. <laughs> what we had people do was separate the grapes from the stems. We didn't have a, a crusher and destemmer. And uh, I knew enough, I had read enough that we probably wanted to destem them. Well, that went on for every year, and that became a, a, an event. And uh, it was fun, it was fun. We, we did that in, uh, when we moved back to Portland, uh, from Missoula to Portland, and then when we moved from Washington, Washington D.C. And, and lived in back to Portland, yeah. and every house had to have a basement. Had to have a basement, you know. yeah. yeah. So anyway. Uh, we, we, uh, it became an event and it, it was fun. It, usually with people doing that, they had never been to something like that before. And uh, so that was always interesting. So they drank and ate and yeah. stomped grapes and, and then we spent the rest of the weekend recovering. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I found was that the quality of the grapes that I was getting when I was an amateur winemaker wasn't real good. And the quality of the grapes back on the East Coast was not real no. good either. It, uh, they were French hybrid grapes. They were not vinifera. And uh, they, they were low in sugar, high in acid. And you could take care of the sugar aspect by adding a little sugar. Uh, but the acid was hard to get down unless you um, added water. And I didn't like to do that. And uh, I, I, I spent four years in Virginia and did a lot of reading. And uh, everything said, you can't make good wine without good grapes. And I thought, well, yeah, yeah you can. Well, you can't, <laughs> is what I found out. And um, the, I think the last year we were there in Virginia, uh, I was ready to order some grapes out of California. Uh, and uh, I think a, an offer came for a transfer back to Portland, so I didn't make any, any wine in that year. Once I got back to Portland, I found some um, uh, vineyards. This was 1985. I found some vineyards in the Willamette Valley that, uh, that would sell to you, and some in eastern Washington and around Mary Hill. And particularly, they had Zinfandel and Moscato, and I tried that. Mm -hmm. um, I, like I said, I worked for the U.S. Forest Service for about 37 years and uh, retired when I was about 58 and uh, thought, i got to do something. Maybe I will um, make wine. And when we started running the numbers, and uh, what it takes to buy 10 acres, 20 acres, build a, a winery, anything like that, it, uh, it got pretty expensive. And uh, unless I borrowed a lot of money and I thought, you know, I'm a little, I, I've been through one good career, I'm not sure I've got enough life left for another one like that. So we ended up um, deciding to uh, do what they call custom crush at an existing winery. Uh, after I retired, I tried to get into the wine industry to find out just exactly what it was all about. 
and uh, I worked for Ponzi's in the tasting room, and they're very welcoming people. Uh, we got along just great, and I did that for two years and learned the marketing aspect of it, at least the sales aspect. Um, I also joined a winemaking club that was called, uh, at the time, was called Westside Winemakers Club. And it was, uh, they met every month at Oak Knoll Winery. Marge Volstecki, who um, owned the winery, her and her husband, Ron, uh, hosted this. And I thought it was really great. Marge was just a uh, super person. And um, at, at these winemaking, at these monthly meetings, we had tastings, we tasted each other's wines, we could treat them. You were able to, excuse me, talk to other, somebody else about, uh, hey, I got this problem, what do you do, this, this kind of thing. And Marge was helpful too. And uh, at, at these meetings, I met uh, uh, Peter Rossback, who owns Shenan. And Peter was just getting started. And um, he'd bring his wines to the club and we'd taste them and they were just super. So I asked Peter, I said, hey, you know, I'd like to start doing some wine making. And he said, well, come on over and help me. Okay, so I did that. At the time, he was at Medici Vineyards and uh, we, uh, I went over and helped him with crush, bottling, and that kind of thing. I also helped my cousin who is in Walla Walla. I helped him during one of the crush. Uh, he owned, part owned Walla Walla Vintners. His name was Gordy Veneri and he had a partner named Miles Anderson. Miles was a teacher at the community college and actually started the, uh, I think he started the uh, winemaking program there. So I had, I had all kinds of people that were mentors and could help too if I had any questions. And uh, that was, that was good. And finally, uh, about in 2002, I had asked uh, Medici if I could um, uh, get a custom crush agreement with him, and, and I could. Hal and I got along very well. Both of us were uh, first-generation Italian, had very similar experiences growing up, and both of us graduated from the University of Portland. He in 1955, and mine was 64, and uh, started out then. And, um, what I did is, um, you know, I knew what I wanted to do and how to, how to uh, make wine from, and what critical points there were. How to move around a ton or two was something else. And that's what, I, that's what I learned, that the forklift was probably one of the most important pieces of equipment in the winery. And um, so I kind of depended on Peter Rossback. Uh, and some of his staff to do the heavy work like the forklift, running the equipment. Um, I really didn't want to run the equipment because uh, equipment has, every piece of equipment has a little bit of idiosyncrasy to it. And uh, if, it, if it fails, you got to know how to uh, fix it right away or get it back on track. So um, I brought in grapes that I'd purchased over in the Dalles. Uh, and in eastern Washington, brought them to um, uh, the, the winery, and uh, we processed them there. Uh, I made all the decisions. Mary and I did, you did, I should say. 
made decisions like what yeast you were going to use, uh, when were we going to inoculate it, uh, how long we were going to leave it, the red grapes to ferment. And, and the, the grapes that I concentrated on were the heavy Bordeaux's, the Cabernet Sauvignons, Merlots, Zinfandels, Barberas. Um, what Mary and I decided is, is okay, if we're going to get into this venture, let's, let's make something that we like. That way, if it doesn't sell, <laughs> we've got something we like. So um, that's what we did. And that's kind of why I latched on to Rossback, Peter Rossback, because Peter did the heavy Bordeaux and uh, got his grapes out of uh, the Dalles and, and uh, Eastern Washington. Well, I'm going to pick that up back there in a second, but I want to back up and talk about Mary. Let's talk about your, your time before meeting this man here. Tell us about where you were born and raised and kind of your, uh, your life before David? Uh, well, I was born in Sendai, Japan. My dad was in the military. And I spent all of my years until I graduated from high school traveling. Uh, we lived in Japan and Panama and Germany. And then we moved to Fort Hood, Texas and moved back to Germany. And I think by that time, I graduated. And so, um, I gra I, well, I graduated from uh, the American uh, military school in Nuremberg. And then I, I came out to the West Coast because my mother had, an, had a sister and brother-in-law who lived in Bremerton. So I went, uh, I went to school there for two years. And then I decided after <clears throat> two years of school that I, uh, I needed a job. You know? <laughs> and so um, I took the uh, civil service test and I was hired to work for the US Forest Service. <laughs> and uh, that's where we met. As he was coming in to take over his job, I was leaving after a year, deciding that if I was really smart, I'd go back to school and finish my degree. So I, um, <clears throat> I went to the University of Washington. And I am a proud dog, and there is a flag in my front yard because I live in the middle of a duck pond. And you've been wearing purple today. Yes, I am. I do. Every once in a, every once in a while, I irritate the neighbors. Um, and so um, uh, Dick and I started dating. Well, actually, he really only called me because he wanted tickets to the basketball game. <laughs> because at that time, um, that's when uh, Lou Alcindor was playing. And so we, there were a lot of really, you know, fantastic basketball players and football players. So he, you know, he said, uh, how about going out to dinner? So we went out to dinner and then he said, uh, can you get tickets for the football game? Sure. <laughs> and the basketball game. But I always got a nice dinner. And um, so then, um, let's see, we got married and moved, moved to Missoula, Montana. And I taught for two years there. And then we had our, our oldest son. And then 
we moved to Portland. <laughs> and just as I was finishing up my paperwork so that I could teach in Oregon, I got pregnant and we had our second son. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember how long we were there, what, about two, two years, three years? Yeah, four years. And then we moved to Washington, D.C. And so um, I never really did work there. You know, it was just too much to go through paperwork all over again, you know, for my, for my degree. And then when we moved back here, I worked for the Beaverton School District for 22 years as a children's librarian. And um, we have two sons. Neither one is interested in managing. <laughs> the wine, although the youngest one has no problems dropping by and shopping, as he calls it, you know. Um, he'll, he'll come in and say, um, I need a couple bottles because I'm going to a football coach's function and I need to, you know, find, you know, where everything is. Um, and we have three grandchildren. And um, we like to cook. Uh, what else do we, oh, we like to garden. Right now we have how many tomato plants? 30? Yep. Because you know if one is good, then 30 is better. 30 times better. Yes, right, and uh, eggplant and peppers and zucchini. And the neighbors all wait for us to put our garden in because Dick doesn't put anything in until the ground is warm. So, um, I don't know, what else do we do? Right now we're binging on eight seasons of a, um, of a series on MHZ called Spiral. And we only have till the end of June and we still have three more seasons. So we've got a lot of watching to do. Good thing it's seller season. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Tell me about your reaction to, or your, sort of your introduction to wine. Was it, was it, did you have any knowledge or, inter, or interest before meeting? Absolutely you? not. The only wine I ever had any contact with was uh, Ripple or Thunderbird or Boone, Boone's, Boone, uh, Strawberry Hill, whatever. Anyway, I don't, it didn't take much for me to realize that this was not, <laughs> not my wheelhouse. But you know, it was, it was for Dick when he started making wine. For me, it was more the history of his family. And you know, just being able, by being married, to be a part of that. And, um, and I still didn't drink that much. Um, I still don't, but I do know a lot about it. And, you know, I don't have any problem sharing. <laughs> when I'm making a blend, and there's a blend over there that I gave you, and uh, uh, it's Cabernet, Merlot, Zinfandel, and Barbera, I will run it by Mary and one of my sons. They have good noses and good palates. And, uh, and no desire beyond. Well, those people at the winery, I'll use them too, but uh, always, always with Mary and Dominic. So tell me about, obviously, starting this as a, as a second career. Uh, tell me about uh, sort of figuring out how to make it commercially. You mentioned kind of the size in terms of moving a ton of grapes around. Tell me about how to make it commercially, how to find people to buy it, and how to find great, enough grapes to make everything you want it to make. Well, the grape sources, I had uh, found some of them 
while I was still working for the Forest Service, um, had uh, Lonnie Wright, who was, uh, owns the Pines 1852, and Lonnie would uh, get me some grapes, Merlot, Cabs, and sometimes Zinfandel, not all the time. And um, uh, so I had a source there. And um, in making the wine, I said, um, Peter Rossback helped in, in that particular area. I kind of followed Peter's protocol the first couple of years. I knew what I wanted to do. And I would ask, OK, what's the, what are you going to do on the next step? And uh, he'd say, he, he or his assistant winemaker would tell me if it sounded reasonable. I just went along with it. There was no use for me to, to do something different uh, or want something different out of the ordinary. Uh, what I found, and, and Peter's assistant winemaker, Aaron Berlin at first, and then Russ Hodgkins, who, uh, who I probably spent the most time with, um, were very helpful. And um, if I was about to walk off a cliff, they would tell me. <laughs> Not too many times, but you know, there were things I wanted to try. And I said, well, you know, I tried that. And it really didn't work very well. So I may or may not do it. But we had a little different styles. Uh, my style is to go ferment the wine totally dry. And, uh, and, and I know Peter does that, too. I leave my wines in the barrel for two years rather than one year or a year and a half. And it depends on the variety, too. A lot of the Pinot Noirs, the lighter wines, you don't want to leave them in the barrel uh, two, more than a year, maybe a year and a half. The heavier wines, or the Bordeaux's, uh, can stand to be there 18 months to two years. And uh, that's kind of what I do. Um, I was surprised. Uh, after the first bottling, I, I bought some high-end corks and, and, and uh, bottles. And the very first thing I did was, to, after my bottling, was uh, take a case of, or take a couple bottles of uh, Merlot and Cabernet, brought them to Nick's restaurant here in um, McMinnville. And uh, the wine steward was going through them. He said, that Merlot's really nice. Good. Handed him, poured him a glass of Cabernet, and he pushed it back at me. Said it's corked. I said what? And I just about fell off the bar stool. And that's when I found out uh, what corked was, uh, TCA. And some of the corks were infected. And when you laid the wine on its side, it got into an infected cork. It had a bad smell. Well, I lived with that for about two or three years. And what I found out was that. As I was going through tastings, and sometimes we had events where I might pour 12 bottles of Merlot, 12 bottles of Cabernet, and every one you smell, you know. And uh, sometimes the wine had no smell. It didn't have any bouquet. Uh, so it didn't have a bad smell, it just didn't have any smell. And what I found from reading is that that was corked. And it was maybe going to get worse. So. Uh, I was looking at screw tops, and I really didn't want to do that. But at the time, this is 2004 or 5, the industry around here started finding the same thing, and they started going to screw caps. Peter Rossback found this 
glass cork thing that I showed you earlier. And uh, the glass corks were part of the German pharmaceutical industry, slopped over to the wine industry in Europe, and uh, Peter came up with it now. I don't know if it was, Peter had spent some time in uh, Germany, so I don't know if it was those contacts or not, yeah. or how we got that. Yeah. But there aren't very many of us in the Northwest that use those. There, there are four or five wineries. We had to get an import-export yeah, license. Right. The first time yeah. I did it, it was import-export. I thought, oh my Lord, I think I paid somebody to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And, and then, then Peter and I, and as well as some other wineries, made some consolidated purchases from the, uh, it was a, Alcoa company in Germany. It was an American company, but it was in Germany. Uh, so anyway, that we've been using that ever since, and um, people are fascinated by it. I know that it um, that it, it it permits the wine to age. I just opened a 2008 2007 Zinfandel, and it was just wonderful. And uh, there's no air so exchange. There, there, was, there was some controversy about, well, if you use screw caps, uh, is it going to age? And during my homemade wine days, that's kind of all I used. I didn't have access to corks. And I know that the wine aged. I don't know if it aged the same as it would with a cork, but it aged and it got better. So for me, that was not an issue. Plus his wife that would go around going, Thunderbird, Ripple, you know, Boone's, Fa Boone's Ferry, whatever it was. <laughs> Although well, a couple of years ago you did use screw tops, didn't you? I did. You? I couldn't. We couldn't, couldn't get, get the glass. Get the I think glass. it was during oh, COVID. Yeah. And it was just such a mess. Our stuff, our bottles, and our cork, glass corks sat out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for a couple of months. Yeah, and then they, they, could, they sat, couldn't get into the they ports. Couldn't get into During port. COVID just yeah. fouled up everything. And then when they did get into port, they sat there for another who knows how long because they didn't have anybody to work. So when were you supposed to bottle in August? Mm -hmm. But I've already got the glass and okay. everything ordered. Right, it's it's sitting in Salem. But the, the year that we couldn't get it, you didn't bottle until almost the end of November, which is, you know, that's a long time in there, so. Now, one thing I learned, and uh, it, it was, uh, don't make more wine than you want to get out and sell. <laughs> Watch your inventory uh, and the cash flow. And uh, so I, you know, I make about four or 500 cases, and I found, I, I did 500 one year, and that pushed me a little bit, because uh, I'm retired. <laughs> and, uh, Which means so you would anyway, have to work. So anyway, that's about where we're at. Uh, the, the boys don't want to take it up, and uh, it's just become a, um, a part-time job. And what my objective is, is to make a great bottle of wine that people enjoy, um, and uh, and it's accessible. It's not. It's it's mid range, mid range price, and uh, so that's kind of where we're at. What were your goals when you started? And, and is this is this about what you expected? Yes, I, I wanted to make a great wine. 
Um, my goal was probably start out small, see if I want to get big, and uh, or if, if, the, if my boys wanted to take it over, and neither one of them did. So we started out small and start concentrated on quality, high quality. And uh, I think we met those. You mentioned selling it. So obviously the biggest challenge is, is selling the wine. So how have you, what have you found to be successful in terms of selling wine? Well, we self-distribute in Oregon. That's the only place I can self-distribute. And uh, we self-distribute to some restaurants and uh, some wine shops and mailing list. And the mailing list kind of finally took hold and you got people coming back and they bring somebody with them and who wants to taste it. And so we, we that's what I found is pretty successful. And the restaurants, uh, some, some of the restaurants use a lot of it, a lot of wine, our wine, which is good. And uh, we sometimes get purchases off of that. Somebody goes to a restaurant and says, gee, I tasted this wine. I got to have a case of it. OK. We can do that. So anyway, that's. Uh, we went to dinner one night um, to a place where he sells a lot of his wine. And the, um, the waitress that we had knew Dick because, you know, he brings some wine in and everything. And she would come rushing over and she would say, somebody just bought a bottle of your wine and they really like it. And I, she, all evening long, she's just back and forth, just like a little mouse. <laughs> they bought another bottle of your wine. It was, and it was, it was really cute, you know, and it was just kind of made us feel good, you know, to know that this was happening. We well, got to it, see it. <laughs> it, it also, um, she would probably tell people, that's the winemaker. Here, yeah. take this wine, that's the winemaker. Winemaker wine and <laughs> both winemakers there. So anyway. Now we clean and it that's up. That's one thing I found, is that people really like to uh, talk with a winemaker. Yeah, they like to meet you they and, like to meet and you, you know. Talk to you, they like to hear your story. That's why, it's, that's why we're here today. So, yeah. uh, you, obviously, you, you mentioned this being a, a, a heritage project in a way. You know, growing yeah. up around wine. So, tell me about that connection to to the heritage. How, does it feel like does it feel like you thought it would in terms of being sort of connected to your winemaking history? Am I connected do, to do, it? Do you, does it feel like you expected it to making making wine like your like your parents oh, yeah. and your grandparents? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Show him the back of your label. The back of the label says something about that. You don't have your glasses. You want me to read? <laughs> I've highlighted it on the back of the label. It says, Salute to my parents and grandparents who passed along our Italian custom of winemaking. And, and that's kind of a, I thought I had to put that on there because I told dad and grandpa I really wasn't interested in that stuff. <laughs> Not making any and they were trying to tell me something, and I wasn't listening until about 10 years later. But I think he'd be proud of, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. what you did. Yeah. And also from everything well, I've heard, your wine was a lot better than what came out of the basement there. <laughs> they did some risky things back then. They didn't use, I don't think they used yeast. 
I don't think they knew what sulfites were. They drained out of the barrel, and that's okay for about maybe the first 20 gallons, and after that it starts to get oxidized. And I can remember some of the wine tasting a little off, and now I recognize that it's oxidized. <laughs> if they let it get down too long. And I know my grandfather, grandpa kept all the family wine in his cellar. And he, I don't remember any five or 10 gallon um, demijohns, um, but there were a lot of gallon jugs around that sometimes he drained into. And uh, so I think as he got towards the bottom of the barrel that he drained it out into, into gallons. A lot of that, was word of mouth, and it was kind of, there was no internet, no anything like that. And like I said, I got all of mine out of that book that I had. <laughs> I mean, th I started that. To be honest with you, there's another book I finally got, and that was uh, Making Table Wine at Home, and that was from UC University of California at Davis. They put that out, and they had some good information. There were also some books. I took some courses at Chemeketa Community College, um, after I retired from the Forest Service, and that was very helpful. Um, and of course, I had other people that I relied on, uh, mentors, things like that. What were the sort of the biggest lessons or the biggest sort of uh, learning curves for you going from amateur winemaking to, to, to professional winemaking? Good grapes. Good grapes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, you can just, you can almost smell the difference. You know, if you get something that's a little green, it just, you know, when you, when you take that first taste, it's like, oh, this is not very good. <laughs> um, yeah, good grapes. And you have to be willing to pay for good grapes. You know, we had friends that, you know, we picked from their vineyards, and some years we had really good wine, and some years it was not. It was just, uh, you know, a lot of that is weather-related, too, and, you know, whether the farmer next door sprays his, his field with copper sulfite and ruins everything. But, yeah, if you don't have good grapes, you, you cannot make decent wine. I think also, um, during the homemade days, I had control of everything. Uh, I would, uh, the vineyard owner might call me and, or I might go out to the vineyard and say, okay, it's ready, I can get some grapes now. Take them home, process them. Well, when you did it commercially, you had to wait in line or you had to coordinate this. And I found that it was best to sit down days in advance and say, okay, here's, here's I'm gonna bring in X tons on this day and uh, can we do it? And we always did, um, whether, you know, we always processed them that day. And that, that was at least one thing. But you better, you better be talking about what day you're gonna bring them in. And uh, uh, then waiting in line or in turn uh, for the press. So you, you have the grapes that are fermenting several days, sometimes two weeks, sometimes three weeks and uh, then it's time to press. And there's a, a line at the press too. 
So you've got to learn to negotiate and uh, work, work yourself into that. Because the, the winers might have 100, 200 tons in there, and you're just a little small guy there. Yeah. And then <clears throat> barrels. Oh. oh, man, I went. We had more barrels at one time than we had furniture in our house. No. I, oh, yes, we well, did. Homemade days. No, Mary, that's not. <laughs> when we moved to Washington, D.C., and the movers were unloading the truck to the house, and I was standing there, you know, pointing like, go this way or go that way. And the guy leans over and he says, there's an awful lot of wine in this truck, and I don't see any furniture. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, well, that's because there isn't any furniture. <laughs> It was, no, I have maybe, but let me tell you, there was, I have pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, yes you do, yes. Well, barrels, uh, commercially, you know, I, I bought, started like a lot of the guys and had French barrels and wish French barrels to, to buy um, and uh, what toast to have them on them, uh, medium, heavy, light, whatever. And uh, I think one year I even bought all new barrels and put all, the, all my wine in new barrels. And it was very good, but it had a lot of oak on it. And I wasn't sure how it was going to age. And I kind of experimented with that. I thought, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. Eventually, what I settled on was French oak, some French oak. Uh, maybe 50% new, 50% used. You could work in a, an American oak there. There was some American oak here uh, built out in uh, Lafayette by Rick Dufiorari, no relation to me. But uh, it was, uh, he used um, uh, Pacific white oak. And they called it Oregon oak. And, um, I liked that. It had a nice impact on the wine. And I'd work a couple of barrels of that in with my, with my mix. But the barrels were always... Expensive. You know, they were expensive, yeah. The French oak was expensive. And uh, the American oak was a little cheaper, but it's getting up there right now. And I didn't like some of the American oak, but uh, found a, a, a supplier that gets their there are trees back in Virginia and Kentucky, and they're pretty good. Yeah. And then he has so, to figure out how to come home and tell his wife that he spent how much? Uh, Five thousand, six thousand dollars on three barrels. <laughs> but that's okay. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> no, maybe a thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, before we move on, I have a couple questions about sort of the industry in the future. But before we move on, I'm, I'm curious about your other career. Uh, you, met, you talked about your career a little bit in, in mm -hmm. the Forest Service and then in, in teaching. Dick, I'm curious about your time in the Forest Service. Uh, well, it's a long career. Give us a little synopsis of uh, sort of what you were working on. Well, I was uh, started out when I was 18 years old. I, I had uh, worked mostly in agriculture. Um, if you were growing up in the Walla Walla Valley, you can't escape a job. There's all kinds of jobs there. There were uh, jobs out in the garden, uh, 
harvesting onions, uh, lettuce, stuff like that. And then when I got old enough, I went to a bird's eye cannery, worked there for a couple of years, wheat harvest, drove a truck with uh, transporting wheat from the combine back to a silo. And then when I was 18, I uh, went to work for the Forest Service on a fire suppression crew and worked at that for four years. And that was uh, a challenge. I enjoyed it. Uh, it helped me get through school because on a year when we had a lot of forest fires, I made quite a bit of money and um, went to work for them permanently after, after college. Graduated from the University of Portland in 1964. Uh, started my career with Forest Service, which was, now I wasn't a forester because they didn't have forestry program at University of Portland. Uh, but I was uh, an administrator. Uh, mostly, most of my jobs were in uh, administration, personnel, procurement, that kind of thing. Um, I was an administrative officer on a couple of national forests, one in Missoula, the Lolo National Forest, and one on the Mount Hood National Forest. And uh, in Washington, D.C., I was in budget and worked with Congress quite a bit. Um, the, answering what we call Q&As, lots of questions. They always had you submit your, Forest Service would submit a budget and chief, chief would testify and he'd come back with 600 questions that we had to answer. So um, that, was, uh, that was a good involvement. Coming back out in the Northwest, I think I was the budget officer for the Oregon-Washington National Forest and then for uh, after a short period of time, I became deputy regional forester for the national forest in Oregon and Washington. And what that meant was there's about 24 million acres of national forest land uh, all through Oregon and Washington. And uh, my responsibility was oversight and leadership and that kind of thing. And that was a pretty challenging job. Yeah. The, uh, it was kind of like the administrative officer on an individual national forest, only this, I had 19 national forests on this. And that, that was fun, challenging. I almost quit mid-career. Uh, we were in Washington, D.C. Um, my mother, I think, would have liked to have us stay in the Northwest. So she would send me these articles this was 1983, 84, sent me these articles about wine and Walla Walla. And um, <laughs> there were, at the time, there were two wineries. I think there was Woodward Canyon and Leonetti. And uh, I thought, this is going to go. This, uh, this, this is about like the first time I tasted Starbucks coffee at the Pike Street Market in Seattle. And I thought, this is going to go. And it did and the wine industry in Walla Walla did. But I also was just about to uh, get into the executive ranks in the Forest Service, get to where I wanted to be. And I thought, nah, I, I don't want to throw it all away. Uh, maybe after I retire. <laughs> so that's, that's what we did. We worked through it. And um, after retirement, then I, as I explained, I got into the winemaking. What were your impressions of the wine industry in Oregon and, and in Walla Walla, when you, especially when you came back to Portland for the, for the kind of the last time? 
what did the industry look like as you were making wine here and starting to kind of familiarize yourself with the industry? I think it well, was still kind of, you know, it hadn't really taken off. I mean, we came back in 1985. Yeah. And it, it somewhat had taken off. But not like it is today. Not like it is today, or not like it was after I retired. It seemed like it mushroomed from about 1985 to 2000. There was a lot of uh, wineries that came in that popped up. And uh, both here in the Willamette Valley, uh, down in southern Oregon, and uh, uh, eastern Washington, and Walla Walla, and the Tri-Cities, and through there. and. Uh, I, I think in the 90s, it just kind of mushroomed and, and uh, kept on growing. Um, I, I see it continuing to grow. Uh, Oregon still has places that I think you can grow grapes. You just got to find them. Um, both in the Willamette Valley and in Eastern Oregon. I think there's, Eastern Oregon hasn't really been tapped that much yet because you got large blocks of land that are owned by uh, farmers that don't really want to break them up yet. And uh, I'm not sure about Southern Oregon because um, when, I, when I lived in Grants Pass in the 60s, there were a lot of cherry orchards in uh, Medford and a lot of orchard fruit, fruit some of those have been replaced with vineyards. And part of that is uh, uh, land that's available because there is public land down there. And you, you can't get, you can't put vineyards on public land. So, so I think it's, um, Oregon still has a, a ways to go. There's, there's land if you can find it. Hopefully uh, water if you need it. Uh, and in some cases, you'll need water when you first plant it, I think, plant the vineyards. Um, so there's, there's still a lot of room. Uh, we haven't got to the place yet where the water isn't safe to drink. <laughs> and and that's, that's interesting, too. I think in, in America here, uh, I, it, wine is not... Uh, not like it is in Europe, where it's common. It's getting there. It's getting there. Mm -hmm. People are enjoying uh, a glass of wine with their meals. But it's but not part of the culture yet. Not part of the culture, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. in Europe, that's just what they do. And, and here, you're competing with a lot of uh, beer yeah. manufacturers, beer makers. So in the time that you've you, obviously, you mentioned coming back in 1985, right as the growth was just just starting mm -hmm. in the industry. What are the most sort of the biggest changes you've seen amongst sort of Northwest wine, the wine industry? Obviously, it's gotten a lot bigger. What else has changed about the industry? Well, I think a lot of the big big wineries from California coming up and buying out um, other wineries. Um, uh, yeah, I always say, and you can hit me if I shouldn't say it, but um, it, it, there are so many wineries around now that my theory is, is people think all you need is a bucket. 
and you can make a bottle of wine, you know, you need a bucket and a few grapes. You need a lot more than that. <laughs> there's there's some work involved to it, that's right. Yeah. It is, there's. yeah. I used to, during Crush, when they would bring the grapes into Medici, I used to uh, get out of the building as quick as I could and or into the bathroom and change into some really disgusting clothes and drive out to the winery so that I could help because they always needed people up on the line or uh, usually they put the shortest person in the world um, below the ramp where the cases come down when they've bottled. And that would be me standing there like this, trying to stop them from, you know. So after about a half an hour of that, I said, I'm done. I'm going home. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was just part for, I don't know, four or five years. That's what I did, you know, during crush. And we used to try to talk to the boys, but they always said, well, I'm, you know, I got a football game or I've got soccer. So, so it was just me. Uh, we did talk a few people into coming out and working, yeah. but I don't think they ever came back. See, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It is, you know, and uh, you know somebody's always running the the forklift with the um, what do you call it the, where the grapes are in. I've lost my. The bin. the bin, you know, and they dump the bin in, and somebody's standing there with a fork pulling them down, and you know, and you're trying to, you're trying to grab the leaves and the bugs and stuff that you know, especially if they don't pick clean. You love it when you find a, vine a vineyard that picks clean. There's no uh, tape or paper or bugs or anything like that. But the f our first couple of years, there was a lot of oh, you know, <laughs> just really. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I watched the industry in 85 when it came back because I, uh, when we moved back to the Northwest. And there weren't as many wineries in the, in the Willamette Valley. There were a few popping up. And then, like I said, from 85 through about 2000, you really found that uh, there were folks coming in that wanted to start a vineyard mm -hmm. and a winery more and uh, they thought that this was a great way of life and it is and um, I think you're going to see that continue for a while. Uh, there was a there was a growth spurt there that I saw that I thought in, in you know after from 85 to 2000 that I thought I was going to miss mm -hmm. and uh, be too late but I don't think we were. Um, and I think you still see uh, wine, uh, people coming in, buying uh, land, planting vineyards, and trying to make wine. And uh, you just got to find uh, just the people in the, in the United States here that, um, that will buy it. I mean, I mean there's, there's got to be, as Mary mentioned, it's not quite in the culture yet, but it's getting there. It's getting there. Um, in Europe, like my aunt told me, it was uh, part of food. And uh, not, not a whole food, but it was a food supplement. And uh, not quite there yet. But it, we'll get there, we'll get there. What's next for the two of you and for the future of the brand? 
we haven't really discussed the future of the brand and uh, what's next. Well, I, we have, but we haven't come to a decision. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to start anything soon, anything different. But uh, I think it's hard to step away, yeah, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, this is what he's been doing, you know, since, what, 1998? Since 98. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Anyway, um, anyway, people ask me, and said, how long have you been making wine? And I'm thinking, gosh, 1972. That's 50 years. <laughs> yeah. uh, not all of it was good. Not all of it was good. But we haven't discussed that yet. No. What we do get from people are um, when, when Dick went commercial, um, the uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms people don't like you having parties where people stomp on the grapes. So we decided that it was best if we just sort of faded into the sunset because we used to have these parties. And you couldn't find a parking space in the neighborhood because there were so many people coming in and out and drinking and, you know, um, eating lots of good food and dancing to Italian music and everything. And um, so when Dick got his commercial license, uh, we, we actually had to step back from that. And we didn't make a big deal about it. And then we realized that people would, we hadn't seen for a while, would come up and say, hi, are you guys still making wine? Yeah, we're, we're still making wine. Oh, oh, OK. Well, um, did we miss your party? <laughs> you know, it's just embarrassing you know, that, that we did this, because it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. But then to have to explain to all these people that, oh, we can't do this anymore, you know, because we get in trouble. No, we don't do that anymore, but you can come out and buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And no. But I would say that this house has probably been the best one for making wine as an amateur because the, um, behind the garage there's another totally full room. So that's where all of his stuff was fermenting. And then um, he realized that the laundry room, so if this was the garage, the laundry room is here. So he drilled a hole in the wall and then put the barrel up against the laundry room wall and then tubes. True gravity. Gravity, gravity flow. So I'm downstairs hollering up, stop! <laughs> you know? And he's pushing, you know, wine is coming down. It was, yeah, that was, that was a real interesting experience. Some wineries that are built on gravity yeah, flow. Yeah, on gravity. Um, but we have our own, you know. Yeah, have... Just a hole in the wall and a couple. <laughs> in the laundry room of all places. As a matter of fact, that's where everything is, yeah. down in the laundry room. Cases of wine. And it's true dedication. It is, it really is. <laughs> but you know it's been fun it's been a, it's been a ride and you know it's uh, um, you know I said at the very beginning that you know he's the winemaker I mean he's, he's the one that goes out you know two three times a week and checks things and everything like that and I'm kind of the gopher you know when when we have an event I'm the one out 
talking to people and picking up glasses and washing them and making sure that there's still food on the on the table and you know running into people that we haven't seen for a couple of years and just you know so that's kind of fun you get to meet all kinds of people sure. new people well that's all the questions that i have okay is there anything that i didn't ask that i should have anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? i don't think so no i actually i think you did a good job that was yeah, lots of they all, these, they all write the questions. So yeah, awesome. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Oh, Welcome. Thank you for asking us. Yeah. We'll go ahead and you off Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.